0: Welcome to the Chris Rawl Show. My name is Chris Rawl. I come to you today a very exhausted and emotional human being, which I will get to on the other side of this break before I get there. Um, it's been an incredible journey this season in the NHL, and especially these last couple months in the playoffs. Uh, great reminder, not that I needed one, just about the sheer amount of emotion that sports can bring out of a fan and people who are also fans, uh, and it's really cool. And that's part of what this show is. Um, and, and I'm starting to interview people about that particular facet of sports and fandom. Just this intense, intense, intense emotional connection that we all have in various ways with the sports and the athletes that we watch that sometimes doesn't align with logic, but when you hear it described, you understand it if you've been a part of it. And, and sometimes you can even understand it if you haven't. So Those interviews are going to start coming out on this feed in addition to the two shows per week that I'm already doing. Uh, And I'll use this time to set another reminder for all of you. If you are one of those people, or if you know somebody who would be willing to talk with me about an intense emotional connection with sports in any facet, you should reach out to me. Uh, My email is chris at ceo.com. I would love to talk to you. Uh, Hopefully you'd be willing to be interviewed and I could use that as a podcast. You're not comfortable doing that? Even just reach out and email me or text me if if you have my number or any of these things. DM me on Twitter at Chris Rawl just to get the ball rolling. Uh, I'm more than willing to just keep it to email communications and go from there. So uh, that's what's going on, Um, and now we are going to move on to today's show where I talk about belief and I talk about acceptance and I talk about the Stanley Cup. I grew up in a very religious household. Uh, that's common for people who grew up in the state of Utah. There is a predominant religion that the vast majority of people who have grown up in the state or have been involved with the state in any way, they've been uh, been a part of in some way. So for me, that was just growing up in an environment that you know religion was, was a big part of my life and my family's life, that was the big thing. Now, I was never really that into it. you know. This component of belief and the way that we would get together and do all these things Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, all the way through Sunday and do it again. And it was just, it was a really, really intense part of life that even as a youngster, I wasn't really that into, it just wasn't for me. Uh, And I found that out over the course of time about just, you know, organized religion in general. It's not necessarily for me. If it is for you, great. I take my hat off to you, but that particular facet of belief and, and Choosing this particular
1: area to believe in just didn't float my boat for whatever reason. So simultaneous to
0: this aspect of my childhood, growing up in a religious household where belief was a big part of it uh, for me, it wasn't necessarily the thing. I was turning into a a huge sports fan. This was very early on, you know, it starts with college football when I'm seven years old and it spawns out into these other sports, basketball and hockey and baseball. And little by little, that strangely enough becomes one of the areas that actually teaches me a lot more about that particular word, belief, than the area you think that that it would, this religious upbringing. Uh, In 2001, I was 15 years old. I had my band of neighborhood friends that we were all very close. Uh, we, We lived in this neighborhood that was pretty new. You know, my parents had moved there probably four years prior, and everybody had moved into this neighborhood at the same time. It was off the beaten path out in the boonies, bunch of dirt roads, new houses popping up, and everybody moves in. We become quick friends, me and my brother with a bunch of other people, and part of this journey was we all became hockey fans together. You know, I've spoken about the Avalanche moving to Colorado in the 1995, 1996 season. That's simultaneous to this time for us, uh, right when we were moving there. And so we become hockey fans together. We become Colorado Avalanche fans. In 2001, you know, we've been big fans for five years. We know the sport. We know the team. Forsberg, Sackick, Waugh, Foot, Blake, Bort, go down the list. And It's the last gasp for this Colorado team. The last chance to win a Stanley Cup for Ray Bork. And we're just, we're maniacs about it, you know. And we found this stick out in the wilderness because we were Rednecks. And for some reason, we thought that this stick had some sort of mystical powers because you got to put your belief somewhere. So we get this stick, we call it the wind stick. And we adorned it with little avalanche trinkets. You know, we had a little Patrick Waugh goalie helmet that was on the top. We had little avalanche pucks that we attached to. I mean, it was truly crazy behavior. We'd stomp around the neighborhood and we'd go watch games together. And it culminates in the Avalanche making the Stanley Cup Finals, going to game seven and winning in that game against the New Jersey Devils. It's one of the coolest uh, sports journeys and memories that I have as a fan over, again, a long period of time. You know, we're talking almost three decades now of me being a cognizant sports fan. And that was just one one of those things that happens that as you're going, you're just like, this is sweet, but I'm 15 and I'm not really that... I'm not hyper aware in a way that I am as an adult of just an experience being really cool as it's happening at the time. You know, I always believed that the avalanche, they're just going to be really good because they always have been. They won the Stanley cup in 1996, the first year they were there and then they're good every year, but they're losing the playoffs. And then it culminates in that 2001 cup. And I go, sweet. Okay, great. Yeah. The ads are just always going to be good. Now this is moving forward into adulthood. You know, this kind of time post 2001, we're moving and I'm, Getting beyond fifteen, I'm learning how to drive and I'm starting to get job, and I'm okay, I'm going out to college and you know when i'm eighteen, I'm making my break with organized religion and I'm having to find these other facets of life and I'm having to answer that question, which belief is a thing that all of us have, and you just kind of have to find you don't have to, but you choose to find areas to put it, what do you want to believe in? That's a really important path of adulthood as you try and find yourself, and once you find yourself as you try and be the best version of yourself and live the life that you want to live. And you can believe in literally anything. That's something that didn't necessarily sink into my skull when I was younger. You know, I, I, uh, I associated the word belief more with the religious side. And as I moved into adulthood, I started to understand, oh, you can, you can place your belief and your hope in a lot of different things. Could be religion, great, yeah. Could be people, you know, it could be a relationship, it could be your family, it could be inanimate objects, experiences. I mean, literally anything on planet Earth you can find. You can say, all right, for whatever reason, this has this has attached itself into my brain, and it's an area that I'm going to kind of go after. So for me, part of this journey
1: was as I looked for places to place my belief, you know, tried to find areas that. I wanted to pursue,
0: for me, the area that I honed in on was belief in myself. That was an area that I really liked. I loved the idea of, you know, religion. It's more about giving yourself up to other things. And and again, that didn't resonate greatly with me when I was young. And strangely enough, as I've gotten older, that particular idea of just eh, giving yourself up to other things. I've done a, a full circle on and I'll get a little bit into that as we go on throughout the show. but. The belief in self really appealed to me because I liked the idea that, yeah, I have a lot of things that I trust myself to do, and I believe that I can do them, and I like the idea that when things go south, I'm the one who had the say in it, and I can either try and get better at it, or I can acknowledge I'm not very good at this thing, and it's probably time to move on and acknowledge my deficiency in this particular way. I really like that idea of belief in self. Something I've really grasped to more and more and more and more and more as my life has gone on. Now, the perfect synopsis of that journey for me has been the game of golf. I've talked about that a lot and I'm going to revisit it today because today is a day where a lot of different threads over the last 20 years have come together and hopefully they make sense. Game of golf and my road to shooting a competitive round under par. That was a lot of years. And again, I've spoken about that. And I want to speak to it again because it is truly one of the most breathtaking journeys I've been a part of. Because it centered on that aspect of belief and just countless repetitions, countless repetitions. And it always seemed so far away for years and years and years. And meanwhile, I was putting in work and I was believing, but in the dark corners of my mind, I'm going, Ugh, it's really hard to do that. And very few people who get involved with this game are capable of doing that. And you know, maybe you just won't necessarily have the skill, but keep trying, you know, trust that you can put in the work, trust that you can develop the skills, trust that you trust that you have the skills, trust that you've, you can in just one 18 hole round, you can find the way to not necessarily master, but channel all the different facets of this particular game, the emotional stuff, the mental stuff, the physical stuff, all of these different threats, trust that maybe it'll come to fruition at some point. And even throughout that, it was just, again, it seemed really far away, even as my skills got better. Um, And then one day it happens. And I actually want to read what I have written about that particular moment because it is incredibly pertinent today. So this is about the first time that, you know, I went under par in a competitive round. First time I shot under par was a magnificent moment in my life. I'm not ashamed to admit this. Regardless of the activity or accomplishment, Sinking a large amount of time and work into something, then seeing that rewarded is an incredible feeling. When I began life as a golfer, I couldn't imagine scoring in double digits for an 18-hole round. And then I got better and couldn't imagine breaking the 90 barrier, then 85, then 80. When I began shooting in the 70s, an under par round seemed both within reach, yet very far away. I continued practicing and improving. And one Saturday at the Oaks, I stepped onto the 18th tee at two under. My body was literally trembling, and at one point, I thought my heart would pound through the wall of my chest and scamper off into Canyon View Park. I had trouble breathing. All I could think about was two years of work and one immense wish. Don't fuck this up. My tee shot went approximately 100 yards but in play. I bunted my way to the green, had a six inch putt for bogey that I marked and lined up, and when I tapped in, I nearly passed out. That's the honest truth. Everyone in my group was overjoyed on my behalf. They gave me the scorecard, and I spent the rest of the day driving around and showing anything. Friends, family, strangers, animals, inanimate objects, the results. To this day, my sister has a picture of me grinning ear to ear and pointing at the scorecard. She says it's the truest depiction of happiness she's ever seen, end quote.
1: So that's, for me, that's belief at its best. It, It has a point that you can tangibly
0: point at and understand and say, oh, this was the culmination of a long time believing in something that had not, to that point, existed, you know? And that's a very rare experience. It's very rare that belief aligns as neatly as it did that day for me. Very, very, very rare, actually. You probably count on one hand the amount of times in my life in whatever facet belief has crystallized into that form. Very, very, very rare. So when you understand it in that way and you go, well, okay, that's really cool. That's an incredible journey. And I love the idea that there's this capstone to this kind of arduous mental Journey. You know, belief's a really scary thing. It's just putting yourself out there in hopes that something will happen without (laughs) the understanding that it ever will. You know, that's a really scary journey. I I take my hat off to literally everybody who engages with that journey in any facet. You know, it's putting yourself out there and exposing yourself to probably being disappointed or sad or heartbroken in some type of way. So when you understand that, you you kind of look at it in the reverse. Uh, I'm a big meditation person. I love that aspect of just exploring the mind. And I was listening to a a kind of guided meditation of the day and they were talking about, I can't remember the instructor's name, but he was, he was talking about just kind of this uh, pursuit of happiness that people are always engaging in and just kind of a lot of times it seems backwards in, in present day. And there's this gap between, you know, what we have in our lives and what we want. And we think that once we get to the point of obtaining what we want, that's where happiness occurs. And it just happens for time and all eternity, you know? And that's kind of the the fool's gold part of the equation. This idea that once belief is manifested and becomes something, that then you're just beaming and you walk around for the rest of time so happy because you shot par. And, you know, that's a learning curve because it wasn't necessarily that easy. I was convinced the day that I left the course, I was just like, well, I'm a good golfer. It's always going to be good. I'm going to just, I'm awesome. You know, things are going to be great in this sport, which is just Maddening and frustrating. It'll always make sense. And I'm just, I'm just good. And immediately it was just a crash and burn and an understanding that, oh, very rarely is a round going to be like this. That's not the sport. You know, golf is not a game perfect. It's Bob Rotel line. It's a great synopsis of what golf is. And that let me down over many more years after this. You know, just okay. You believe and you pursue tangible things, but that happens very rarely and once you even obtain it that gap you know that you've shrunk and now you've obtained the one thing your heart desires that doesn't just exist in perpetuity for all of time and you feel that way there's always the question of what's next so that's a whole other facet of being a human being and just going through this journey of belief and where do you want to sink your time and hope and all of these just these these things that you have to be a part of is you go and you move throughout life. It's just another path, you know, that you get on moving forward into adulthood. You know, how do you accept all the many times, the vast majority of times actually, that
1: your belief remains unfulfilled? This is the component of acceptance that I've learned a lot about as an adult. This is this is a word that I
0: think normally has a negative connotation. It's the idea that you're giving up. It's the idea that uh, you're just, you want to be a passive participant. You're not, you're not willing to put yourself out there. And the more I've learned about acceptance in my own life, the more I think that it's, it's a really powerful thing when you harness it in the correct manner. And the two areas that I think have taught me a whole hell of a lot about the word acceptance are fandom and relationships, and those two things have been really intertwined as I've gotten older, because when I was young, you know, I'm not having any relationships with any women because I was just a little chilly boy. I was petrified of the opposite sex until I'm, you know, twenty years old or whatever. But I have been a sports fan since I'm seven. And early on, it was just it was all belief and never an understanding that things would be different. You know, being a Nebraska football fan, Is ingrained in the mid-90s, just this team is a dynasty. They're awesome. They're always going to be that. And it's been a really harsh 20-plus years understanding that's not the case. And the Avalanche, they followed not the exact same path, but it's been kind of a similar thing because the Avs jumped into my life, and they won the Stanley Cup, and it was awesome, and they were really good through 2002, making... Western Conference finals, losing in three different game sevens, winning two different Stanley Cups, being a part of the best rivalry in professional sports against the Red Wings over that time span is awesome. And then Patrick Waugh's retiring and then Joe Sacks retiring. And then suddenly the team's gone and suddenly they're not good. And I'm just going, oh, I kind of took for granted that stretch of time when the Avalanche were freaking awesome, and I was able to enjoy this sport through the lens and prism of my own team being really good and being in the playoffs every year. Now I'm understanding and having to accept, oh, it's not always that easy as a fan. In fact, most fans can attest you actually never really even get that. You know, if you get that one time, you're lucky. That can be the case for a lot of fans and a lot of different sports. So over the ensuing years, and this is simultaneous to me going through adulthood, getting into my twenties, starting to understand just, oh, okay, what do I want from life? Ooh, you know, like, starting to pursue different relationships in different areas and trying to understand what do I want? you know what do what do I expect? do I should I have expectations? Is this good for me? what uh, Just all of these things bouncing around as I'm you know? dating, hanging out with this person, building up a really solid relationship with this person, going on and on over years and years and years and years. And with fandom itself, I think what has really crystallized in the last decade, and I had to get to this point with the avalanche because if you don't, you just go insane. Got to the point where I was like, okay, you know, if this is all it is at this current moment in time, then so be it because it's still really cool. The Avalanche are not winning Stanley Cups. They're not even making the playoffs. There's still a lot that I can take away from this particular journey because hockey as a sport is electric and following a team and following all the players on the roster is always a reward in its own right. It's one of the things that I crave. It's one of the things that I love. So even when the Avalanche are bad, there were still things that I go, this is not ideal, but man, you know, this young Nathan McKinnon's fun. Young Gabe Landis this is fun. Ooh, this trade for Eric Johnson, you know? Cool, coming over from the St. Louis Blues, big, swift defenseman, former number one pick. All right, sweet. And the ads are still bad, but all right. There's at least oh, who's this Miko Rantan and this young wing from Finland? Okay, cool. There's an acceptance that goes into that experience that you you don't have to have, but for me, I kind of have to because I follow it so closely. I invest really deeply from an emotional perspective, and you know, it takes years off your life when your team is just losing and losing and losing in any facet. And it's really depressing when your team is just the worst, which the Avalanche were on two different occasions in the last decade, most recently in the 2017 season. So that type of acceptance kind of originated for me in fandom. You know, that's decades of experience there. But as it was happening, I think it really ingrained itself in my mind and spread outward into other facets of my life, especially with relationships, you know? As I've tried this and tried this and this hasn't worked out here and this hasn't worked here. And, you know, how do you make sense of just this crazy, always evolving situation that you're a part of? What are things that you can extract that provide meaning and solace and comfort, even if you don't necessarily get to the end and say, oh, this is going to exist forever in perpetuity. This, instead, this was just a specific moment in time or stretch of time. you know, and Fandom, strangely enough, has been kind of a good step forward for me in that respect of being able to say, "Okay, you know what? I'm perfectly content saying if this is all there is, then so be it. This is really cool." And being more cognizant of that in the moment as it's happening, and saying, "Whatever happens, whatever's happened before, whatever happens after, this is something that is really special," and I'm glad that I am a part of it. So, I want to read something else that I've written. That first um, that first paragraph came from an essay that hopefully all of you have read. If you haven't, it's on my site at chrisrawl.com. It's called Profits and Polos. It's about golf. There's another essay that's on there. It's about college football. Um, and that essay is a lot, it has a lot to do with these themes that I've been discussing today because they're ingrained into my life as a fan and as a human. And I want to read a couple paragraphs that I think really uh, summarize just what I'm feeling today and what I've been feeling over the last while. And hopefully, again, this will make sense as we get into what happened on Sunday night. So here comes from this is from um, my essay on college football called Falling Out the Other Side. The human experience is perfect imperfection. A Few days ago, I came across a picture of myself and a girl I used to date. We don't talk anymore and that stings because we shared something intimate at a time when both of us needed it. On a late summer evening, we traveled to Sundance and wandered careless over worn dirt paths, our shoes crunching against pine needles, dust growing in rings around our soles. A river rushed by unseen, green leaves filtering light from a falling sun. There was no one. Our laughter filled the fading sky as it changed from clear blue to a dark purple bruise, her arm threaded through the crooked mine. The snapshot captures us mid-laugh, her smile a brilliant flare, mine a lasting echo. She's wearing a cream-colored shirt split by a thin stripe, red, white, and blue, sunlight casting a translucent glow over threads of her blonde hair. My hand rests against a sliver of her exposed stomach, tracing the rise and fall of her breath. We are comfortable and content and strengthened by the very best of what we offered one another. Acceptance void of expectation in a place that's safe and warm. The end of an arc does not indicate failure. An ending is not an admission of sadness or hopelessness or anger, just an acknowledgement of the passing of time. It can be hard to let go of what we once had We dwell on past moments of perfection inside an imperfect world. Combing through these memories for hope in the future, convinced with absolute certainty we can find that feeling again. Eventually we accept and move on because chasing the past or future for too long means missing everything else
1: along the way. End quote. So, Fandom. Fandom has been an integral part of my life for as long as I can remember. And it has been probably the very best thing in my adult life of teaching me that in this particular area I am a passive observer and I have to accept that I have no say in the outcome. And if you understand those things and you want to
0: be as happy as you can possibly be and live life as full as you can live it, then
1: you got to say, all right, so I have to take from this what I will. You know, it's it's kind of the idea of what can, maybe the situation's great, maybe it's not. That's kind of irrelevant.
0: It goes back to a lot of uh, teachings that are ingrained in the world of meditation, just you can find whatever you want from literally any situation, no matter how negative or how positive it may seem to an outsider. You can choose to extract from the situation what you will. That's a really incredible thing if you can channel it correctly. Sometimes I can, sometimes I can't. It's hard to do. <laughs> I'm sure all of you know that. Um, and I wrote that line, uh, convinced with absolute certainty we
1: can find that feeling again. And... I've gone through life, and I would say the last decade, and I'd
0: say I'm never at the point now where I'm convinced. You know, whatever has happened in the past, I had never in present day sit there and go, I'm absolutely certain, I'm absolutely certain that this thing is going to happen again. But because it's happened before, and sometimes even if it hasn't happened, that belief component moving forward, I go, I know that it's possible to experience... That feeling again, I've experienced it before,
1: or if I haven't, I understand and believe that it exists somewhere out there. And I'm more than willing to say, keep putting yourself in position and just trust that maybe that manifests someday. So that leads us into Sunday night. Game six, Colorado, Tampa Bay. Stanley Cup's on the line. One of those, just <laughs> one of those, how do you find a way to win type games that Tampa has mastered
0: over the last three years? That Colorado is still trying to find their way up through Sunday night. Just Stanley Cup playoffs demand everything and anything out of the team that will win it. Sometimes it's impossible to understand what it takes to win until you've lost a lot. Colorado, okay, you're checking off the boxes the last few years. You're losing these heartbreaking game sevens. One goal game to San Jose. Overtime loss to Dallas Stars, just a true punch right in the gut. Last year's game six to Vegas, just emotional turmoil. And you're watching Nathan McKinnon in his post-game press conference after the Vegas game saying, I haven't won shit. And they're asking him, what do you guys need to be better? He goes, I don't, I just, I don't know. You could tell he's just trying to process this incredible disappointment for a player who said in that interview he goes, you know, I I thought we were the best team in the league this year and just for whatever reason we didn't win. So game 6 is just kind of the perfect culmination of this avalanche journey within the locker room and within the organizational structure of belief. I was listening to a post-game interview from Eric Johnson, the longest-tenured Avalanche player, got traded there over a decade ago, had many opportunities to leave this team When they were bad, a lot of people wanted out. Ryan O'Reilly, Matt Duchesne, players like that. And Eric Johnson's like, I want to stay here. I want to try to be a part of just helping build this team back up into something. A couple years ago, he's he's battling injuries. He's fallen off the face of earth compared to the player he used to be. He's talking about retirement. He's just, I don't know if I'm going to play hockey. And he has this interview. It's like a minute and a half long. And he's just, they're going, what? You know, just tell us about this journey. And he's like, I don't, you know, I'm... I don't know. It's hard to process. Just it was belief. It was, I had to have people in my life, just in my ear, just who believed in me. I, I was there believing in myself. I was there believing in my team. It's back and forth. Just a lot of these core beliefs that exist in hockey that really attract me to the sport because after every Stanley cup run, you just hear all these stories of like, Oh, this is really cool to see just this melting together in a team sport where you're acting as one. A really cool thing to see exist he's going yeah I just had to you know I was on the brink of retirement two years ago battling concussions he's battling other injuries his body's just breaking down and this year he struggled all regular season and then somehow I have no idea how taps into the fountain of youth and he's just an incredible awesome top four defenseman for Colorado throughout the playoffs just an incredible turn for this player who again looked like he was on his last legs He's a fringe sixth defenseman at times in the regular season. I'm going. He should be a healthy scratch. He's hurting us. We should have Ryan Murray in. We should have Jack Johnson in. Like there were multiple times throughout this regular season where I thought he was one of the worst defensemen that you could possibly have. And instead, the playoffs go on and somehow, some way, he's just he's incredible. So he's talked about that belief component. Just we got to find a way, you know. And you look down the Avalanche roster, and it's like there are injuries left and right. I mean, Andre Burakovsky. He broke his ankle. He broke his hand. He was playing with those things at one point, which is freaking insane. They're all trying to hoist the cup. uh, Andrew Cagliano's got a broken hand. He's hobbling around with it. Nazem Kadri broke his thumb in two different places. His hand's wrapped up. He's trying to hoist it up. It's just it's all the hockey stuff. You get to the end, it's just a war of attrition. And Tampa was feeling the exact same thing on the other side. Just go down the list of all the people that were getting blasted. Anthony Sorelli and Braden Point and... Eric Chernak seemed like he's getting injured every other shift by Nathan McKinnon shot. And in the midst of all this, you just, you got to find a way. That goes into starting at the organizational point. Just, we got to believe in this vision of us as a rush team. And then we got to build outwards, sack it, the general manager in outwards, And then the Avalanche is a team. Just this subtle transformation that they've gone through over the last few years. Where they popped and they had this young, exciting talent. And, They'd have really cool highlights, but then they got in the playoffs and it was a lot more grindy and mucky. And a lot of people had questions of just, "Ah, I don't know, this team, can they just dump and chase? Can they buckle down offensively? Do they have the goaltending? When things aren't going perfectly for them on these neutral zone rushes where their speed can just jump off the screen, can they win? There's a lot of those questions. And that it's been a really subtle transformation that was jarring by the time game six was happening and especially the third period of this team that has transformed from, okay, a lot of people would call them a one-trick pony, and now they're a well-rounded hockey team that is capable of winning in a variety of ways. That's the path to winning a Stanley Cup. And me on the fan side, it was, you know, I watched this very closely because they're my favorite team and following hockey day-to-day is awesome. I would highly encourage it. I would highly encourage everybody to be a part of that, find a team and just follow it day-to-day. It's really freaking fun. And it's at its funnest when you see this over the span of years. And you see a team that I have doubts about and I understand, but I still have a lot of just positivity and go, "Ah, there's the makings of something special here. Then you see it just a little bit of baptism by fire, but you need more and then you get a little more and then you need more and then you get a little more and then you're sitting here this year and I'm going from the start of this season, there's just something different about this team and I'm seeing it and they're talking about it and I can see it every game, finding different ways. They're just focused. They're not going out of their way to, oh, great, sweet. We had this cool goal and yeah, let's go celebrate. They're just, it's a team that, literally seemed like they were on a mission and once the playoffs started they're finding a bunch of different ways to win sometimes it was spectacular the first period of their very first game against nashville was just an avalanche in every sense of the word five goals chase david riddich Cam McCarr just spectacular highlight real goal and then other games it was just muck and grind and you gotta find a way st louis blue series a lot of that tampa bay series it was pretty much all that with the exception of game two and what i would point to will just I haven't gone back to rewatch the game. I'm still kind of writing the high of <laughs> what occurred and, and I'll go back and watch it before the next episode. But what I'm still writing and of all the memories that I have from this playoff run, and there's a lot of spectacular plays that were made that anybody can just point at and go, holy shit, what was that? Nathan McKinnon's goal against St. Louis in game five. It's right there with the McCarr goal. Just, you're not gonna see something like that very often in a playoff game. And in fact, you might not ever see something like that again. Dude starting behind his net and running through five people with the game on the line and scoring. Holy mackerel. But even amongst all these things, just incredible plays from go down the list of all these people, Devon or Valery Nichushkin, or Nazem Kadri or Gabe Landscott or Miko Ran, the two that really have stuck out as I've kind of processed this over the last day are what happened in The Last Minute, which if you're not a hockey fan, and even if you are, you'll probably forget about this in the not too near future. And if you're not a hockey fan, you just go, oh, okay, whatever. Like this Colorado team was sweet, but I'm not going to remember what happened in the final minute. But the two plays that really symbolize this transformation, this process of we believe in ourselves organizationally, we're building our roster out. And these two stars that we have, McKinnon and Makar, just these two transcendent superstars, they are going to be the forefront of this subtle shift from. A team that can do this one thing really well into a team that can do anything and everything to win a Stanley Cup. The last minute, Abs are nursing a one-goal lead. I swear to you, it took 500 years off of my life. The third period of this game, the last minute, Sean McDonough screaming, "You know, a minute to go!" The Avalanche hold off. They win the Stanley Cup. And the puck's in the zone, and Nathan McKinnon's there, who has just been a force of nature ever since he came to the Avalanche and has been there through a lot of losing years. And early on in his career, because this is what you do to people who have immense skill, but their team doesn't win. He's doing these end to end things. He's just a powerful force of skating and speed and power and shooting. But then the ads aren't winning. And everybody goes, well, you know, he's not good enough at defense. And is, is he even that good? Like, can you build around him? And he kind of makes that turn in 2018 where he really jumps on the screen of just, okay, this is a star. And there's a lot of stars, but how many stars can win a Stanley Cup? You need different skills. You need to be able to do anything and everything. That last minute, Kutrov's getting the puck. He's trying to rip it on net. And Nathan McKinnon's the one, a dude who you would never associate with just a fourth line grinder blocker. And he's there throwing his body, he's blocking the first shot. And then Kutrov's getting it back and he's trying to rip it on. And McKinnon's just there. He's just, he's the new Andrew Cogliano. He's the new Darren Helm. Just these people who they've made careers off blocking shots. And McKinnon's the one who's there. Which in a normal situation I'm going. I don't want you blocking shots. You're gonna break a. You're gonna break your ankle, like Andre Burakovsky. That's how he broke his ankle. You're gonna break your hand. That's how Andre Burkovsky broke his hand. And instead, I'm just going break anything and everything. You want it. I want it as a fan. Just do literally anything. So he blocks multiple shots. He spears it out with 30 seconds to go. Just the perfect clear that didn't result in icing, and gave the Avalanche a chance to get a change. And now there's 30 seconds, and Tampa's trying to get back in the zone, and Makar comes on. McCar, who is just even th- my highest expectations were Cal McCarr. And I promise you they were high. Even his last year at UMass when he won the Hobie Baker award as the best collegiate player and he's getting ready to come into Colorado. And I just had slapped myself silly believing this dude is going to be a part of this core and it's going to be great. Even amidst all that the first game that I've talked about a bunch him stepping into game three against Calgary in 2019, scoring a goal in the first period of his very first NHL game as a defenseman that was a game three of the first round of the Stanley Cup playoffs against the number one seed in the Western Conference in a 1-1 series. Even if it's all those expectations, I I, I truly couldn't have envisioned what this season has turned into. Just this star turn, best defenseman in hockey, one of the best, maybe the best player in hockey, wins the Con Smythe Trophy, wins the Stanley Cup. And Makar, who just dazzles in every way, shape, and form, and me being just the most defensive person ever of Makar and McKinnon, because I've been the ride or die for these people since day one. I've heard stuff about Makar in the past where it's like, okay, yeah, I mean, the highlights are great in his offense, but, you know, the, okay, well, what about the defense? And I'm going, watch this guy play defense. Just watch it. He does everything at the highest level. I've never seen a player like it. And whatever the situation demands, this dude is just there. It's like a, it's like a LeBron James. Just have so much awe for players that have, talent and skill in every possible way. And you could just go and do the highlights at all times. And if that wasn't working, just say, all right, you know, I'll wait till the next time I can try and do that. And instead it's just, what do I need to do tonight? I will go and do it. And the last 15 seconds, it's the second thing along with these McKinnon shot blocks of just this illustrates how you become a Stanley cup champion. They enter the zone with 15 seconds to go Andre plot. And I'm screaming. I'm just like, just don't just do anything. Just, I couldn't even think at this point. And Makar jumps, Palat gains the blue line and Makar is obviously the defender back on that right-hand side and he jumps the play in a way that you just wouldn't really be doing. You just try to, most players, actually pretty much every player would just be like, okay, I want him to send it around the boards and they can try to dig it out and we can try and, you know, muck it up there and and waste the time. And instead Makar, because he's just a player who processes hockey in a different manner than others, he's just like, I'm going to play defense how I play defense, which is I'll step up on that blue line And I'm going to bull rush Andre Pallott, who's trying to hold it here and waiting for his people to enter the zone. And instead, Makar just runs right through him, pushes him and the puck out of the zone, and then just spends the last 15 seconds for checking for the Stanley Cup, buries it down there, goes and mucks it up against the glass. And Sean McDonough going, fittingly, Makar is the one to check this out. And I'm just like, this is this is everything. This is this is everything that you want as a fan. And it's incredible to watch this moment happen again. That was 21 years ago for me where I'm just like, oh, I knew this was a theoretical possibility. There's been various points over the last two seasons for sure, where I believe that uh, maybe this, maybe this. And then I would temper that because I go, no, this is too hard. And even as this was happening in game six, I was just I couldn't think of it. And it was only within the last five seconds when McCar had the puck and then they pinched it out. And I was just like, oh, OK. This is. This is my favorite team winning the Stanley Cup. This is the two star players on this team just showing out in really minute and nuanced ways that you'll never see on a highlight ever,
1: but you need in order to win. So that that aspect, um, I'm going to get more into analysis
0: later this week because I have a lot of things to say as far as team and individual that pertain to this Avalanche team. And I'm very very—I'm in a very good position to talk about that considering I watch every single Avalanche game and these playoff games multiple times. But today, I didn't want to get as much into that. I wanted to examine this strictly through an emotional lens. And just this this journey that life can take you on that's really cool. Because it's never a given that you will find that feeling again. Something that you felt before for me 21 years ago. Or maybe something that you've actually never even been a part of that you just think about and go, maybe it happens. I'm not going to sit waiting for it because I got to go and live life, but maybe it will. Uh, And for me, you know, 21 years later, amidst all the turmoil of this last decade, the Avalanche being the worst team in hockey five years ago, a couple years before that, worst team in the Western Conference. It's all the turmoil of that. You know, it appears, just appears out of, not out of thin air, but it appears kind of just... (laughs) in a way that you're never really prepared for, I guess is probably the best way of describing that. And so I get to watch those last five seconds and then the buzzer's going off and I get a shout and I get a scream and I get a high five and I get to just, I get to sit down and just bask in the celebration and just get a bunch of text messages from my friends. Just all the things that, you know, it, it's just it's awesome. Um, and I get a reminder, (laughs) one that, one that I periodically need because fandom can be a grind sometimes, but you know, there are things in life that can be grind sometimes. Everything can be a grind sometimes, and so you just, you need a reminder sometimes that when. Well, when things go your way, you know, uh, when when sports are good, there is nothing better. Thank you for listening to the Chris Rawl Show the podcast is produced by Weston Tanner. Um, if you have an emotional connection to sports, you should reach out to me. I'm going to be interviewing people on this feed about... The emotionality of sports, just what it can bring out in you from a feeling and emotional perspective. Really cool stuff. Out of the things that I've talked about today. Um, So if you're one of those people, if you know somebody like that, you can DM me on Twitter at Chris Roll. You can email me, Chris at CEO.com. You can just find me, just literally find me. I don't care. Find a way (laughs) Um, and hit me up and we can kind of go from there. Uh, So thanks for listening today. Um, And I'll be back on Friday to... Presumably discuss more avalanche. (laughs) All right. Thanks.